Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, recording again at LAC 2021 here in Washington, D.C. So we've got our natural NPR sound in the background as folks are transitioning between sessions today. And I'm joined today by one of my good friends out of Tennessee, um, where I lived for 20 years, Dr. Sandy Herman. Um, we've actually done some discussions in the past um, on behavioral health, and he's been intimately involved with uh, behavioral health and um, emergency medicine in Tennessee, uh, headed up a number of projects and, and task forces. And we're actually going to talk about some of that today. Um, if you tuned in or haven't or haven't had the opportunity to tune into our discussion on medical clearance just a, a few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago now, I guess, um, check that out because that is actually one of his topics as well, and we've we've covered that. So we want to make sure that you get a chance to listen into that. Uh, but today we're going to talk about that acute evaluation and management of the behavioral health patient in the emergency department, some of the projects that they've done, as well as some of the protocols they put in place to um, really help with the disposition management of behavioral health in the emergency department because we all know that that is a huge challenge for many of us across the country um, in areas where you have just significant um, significant uh, delays and, and, and boarding and all those types of things. And so really tackled from the Tennessee's perspective on how to manage some of that and how to get many of them out of our emergency department. So Dr. Herman, thanks for joining us again here on the front line. Uh, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here with you uh, once again and maybe uh, shed some light on some of the projects that we've been doing in the state of Tennessee. Well, let's get a breakdown because it started, or at least the initial report was 2017, updated 2019, I believe, from what I saw from the quick search. Give us a background on it. Yeah, that's correct. About uh, 10 or 11 years ago, I was part of a panel discussion here at the uh, uh, Leadership and Advocacy Conference where we uh, began to discuss uh, boarding. And I was with uh, representatives from the state of Washington and from Massachusetts, Maryland, and uh, Tennessee. And uh, we found that uh, boarding was increasing. Uh, ASEP re released a uh, white paper in 2006 that identified a potential problem uh, coming. Uh, and in 2010, 2011, our boarding time and the, the meter began ticking uh, when the emergency department called the crisis team, so that's when the state could become involved and the crisis workers could become involved. And in Tennessee, back then, we had a boarding time of between uh, 8 and 11 hours. And then in 2011, 2012, uh, we began to notice that uh, uh, boarding times were creeping up and uh, we're getting a little bit over 26 hours. We're still under a lot of states in the uh, country, but it was a, a warning sign for us, and we wanted to see some things that could be done. So the commissioner in uh, 2016, the commissioner of uh, uh, mental health, Marie Williams, called a task force and charged us with uh, looking uh, and studying the reasons that patients were staying in the emergency department and how to reduce that wait time and also um, provide better treatment in the emergency department for behavioral health patients. So give us a little bit of background on uh, those findings um, and kind of the demographics and things that the task force uncovered in terms of the behavioral health, uh, behavioral health presentations to emergency medicine. Well, we found three areas. Uh, that we thought we could improve uh, boarding time with in uh, treatment of uh, patients. 
And the first area was uh, initiation of early treatment at the point of entry into the healthcare system. And that treatment was defined as treatment now, wherever the patient enters. And for us, it became uh, the emergency department. Uh, and we found that, uh, you know, emergency physicians were a little bit uncomfortable in prescribing medications mm -hmm. or starting treatments. And uh, uh, we wanted behavioral health patients uh, to be treated the same as a patient that's brought back with a myocardial infarction. We found that uh, uh, the wait time between coming to the emergency department uh, and being seen by a physician was a little bit longer th uh, for other patients. So we wanted to work on that and uh, raise the comfort level of emergency physicians by establishing uh, protocols for early treatment. The second thing that we found was that um, the crisis stabilization units uh, weren't being utilized as much as possible. We were running about 70 to 75 percent occupancy and we wanted to work on raising the occupancy in the CSUs. And the third thing that we found is that we needed to enhance our crisis teams. We have 14 in the state of Tennessee, so quite a bit of uh, financial aid was directed at the uh, crisis team. So those are our three areas uh, that we work to uh, uh, enhance. And you found that uh, in the study there was uh, some low-hanging fruit in terms of the presentations to the emergency department that were more amenable to those early interventions and disposition out of the emergency department. Of course, not not talking about you know the suicidal uh, or, or unstable schizophrenic aspect of things, but you found some uh, common themes that were amenable to that addressing in the emergency department, department and uh, disposition. So in, in looking at all the, actually we got it from the billing data from uh, the Department of Health and the Tennessee Hospital Association, that at any uh, given time, uh, about three to five percent of the patients in the emergency department had a primary psychiatric diagnosis. And then if you were to uh, slide down into secondary and tertiary behavioral health diagnosis, you more than likely had 20% of your emergency department occupied with uh, behavioral health uh, patients. And in the 2017 to 2019 study, that translated to between 28 million and 30 million patients out of uh, uh, usually about 145 to 150 million patients seen in emergency departments. So 20% of the patients uh, had a behavioral health uh, diagnosis. So in looking at it, in the uh, patients that are admitted to mental health institutes in the United States, 65% are uh, comprised of the mood disorders. Mm -hmm. And we also found that if uh, you took a patient with a mood disorder and began early intervention in the emergency department, or just putting them back on the medications that they had been taking uh, before, that the low-hanging fruit was that you could discharge within about a 24-hour period uh, between uh, 65 and 80 percent of the patients could be discharged. And now that doesn't mean that they were sent back out onto the streets. It could be to a CSU or you arranged follow-up the next day by their crisis team or follow-up that night, but they didn't necessarily need to be uh, an inpatient in a psychiatric facility. That's, that's interesting uh, to talk about 
because so much of behavioral health and so much of what we see is, you know, is the, the destabilization and the acute crisis is from non-compliance with the medications uh, that they're on. I mean, knowing a number of the folks that say, well, I was, I was feeling fine, so I stopped taking my, you know, whatever right there. And, and so really the whole crisis is just reestablishing the medications, the, the treatment plan that's already in place. Um, and one of the, one of the approaches uh, that, you, that you guys created and actually available online, you can actually search it pretty easily. Um, I just I happened to just Google search uh, in terms of the behavioral health um, behavioral health and, and uh, task force, and actually your name, um, in Tennessee, and the whole report came up, the updated report in 2019, 36 pages worth, and I'm actually on page 31 right now with regard to um, protocols, um, you know, the physician orders and the steps that can be taken in the emergency department. Talk about some of those things that were initiated that you guys created uh, in order to get that ball rolling and to prevent folks from having to reinvent the wheel with regard to how do we how to address um, behavioral health crisis in the ER? Well, I've always, I've always felt that our job in the emergency department was to identify or categorize the behavioral health issue that was, uh, was going on. And then if we were talking about transferring a patient, uh, you know, the receiving facility wanted to have confidence in, in your transfer and mainly know that the patient wasn't going to uh, deteriorate on that uh, trip over to the mental health uh, mm -hmm. institute. So we found uh, several categories uh, of agitation in the emergency department. They go from mild to moderate uh, and um, severe and extreme agitation. And we found that there were drugs that could be used for each one of these categories uh, to calm a patient down, have them uh, participate uh, in their care with the crisis worker much earlier. So if a patient comes into the emergency department and the first thing you do is ask them to be put into uh, a room and grab the usual cocktail of uh, Haldol and uh, Benadryl uh, and Ativan. So the B-52, you the hear B the plane circling. The B-52, so the, the uh, you're going to delay the time that that mm -hmm. patient is going to be able to talk to their crisis worker or talk to you or get their uh, physical examination. The medications, the medications are uh, fairly, I wouldn't say they're basic, you have to study some of the uh, categories. Uh, the goal of early treatment uh, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, the, the medications are using number one medication for a mood disorder was lithium. Uh, and you know, that's, that's progressed. So the, the idea is to treat the patient with a medication that's going to have the least amount of side effects, and that's where the, uh, the research is conducted now to uh, come out with medications that are mm -hmm. going to do that, are more targeted, uh, for example, more targeted to uh, the dopamine receptors to uh, level the patient out. So we found uh, various categories, and the first one was a mood disorder, and then a category of a mood disorder with psychoses. And you, could, you can look at the report, and we were able to add on drugs, and to uh, control agitation. And then uh, if it went to severe agitation, there was a series of drugs. Initially, you start with oral medications, and then uh, you go to an IV, uh, I'm sorry, an IM medication. And then if the patient has severe agitation, uh, those medications can be given IV. And it's obvious that it may be difficult uh, to start the IV. But uh, by using these medications, 
you reduce waiting time or boarding time in the uh, emergency department. Uh, you free up a bed uh, sooner, uh, and the patient becomes stable, able to participate, uh, and um, you, you're just going to have a, a smoother and more pleasant interaction uh, with your patient, particularly if you start treatment early and don't put the patient off, get to that patient, try to put them in the proper silo and use the uh, medication treatment regimen that's appropriate. And one of the biggest challenges we face is the fact that not only, as you guys mentioned, the boarding issue, um, but we almost feel like the psychiatric, we're just we're just kind of the stopgap bus stop for transition and don't initiate treatment. But, you know, when you've got somebody that's going to be in for, you know, a day, two days plus, um, you know, two weeks or whatever, you know, some of these averages, especially with um, adolescent behavioral health challenges, you know, there's the time needs to be well spent. There needs to be interventions and action that can help the patient towards recovery and improvement. Um, and I think so many times in emergency medicine, we, you know, put the patient in the room waiting for the behavioral health consult and disposition plan uh, without actually addressing the challenges going on. And that's one thing that's nice about uh, this is just, this is two pages worth of um, worth of protocols, standard protocols um, and kind of a step by step where they fit inside the niche and then kind of running from there, of course, designed off the, the paper uh, record stand uh, standpoint. But, um, you know, get, initiating how those medications, getting the patient in a um, stabilized and better place, and then working towards whatever your disposition uh, plan is, is going to be. Um, and so, you know, that's available, as I mentioned, it's the t.aws update. And that's actually what you can search because that's the name of the file is t.aws update. And then uh, talking about pages 31 and 32, and then many of the things we've talked about here have been kind of in that realm of, of the graphs and what you see in the protocols uh, that you take on uh, as those patients come in. So what have you guys seen as you've put this into practice in Tennessee um, and initiation of what, what have you seen in terms of, of outcomes? Well, you know, the, the first thing that uh, I noticed, and one of my uh, jobs with the Department of uh, Mental Health was to go to uh, every emergency department in the state, and I was uh, making pretty good progress until we got hit with COVID. Uh, and I'd been to about uh, 40 of the 122 emergency departments, and then, then when we got hit with COVID, things slowed down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I offered to do them virtually, and everybody said, well, you know, in about two months, we'll be able to get back to meetings. And that didn't occur. So I've given, I've probably given about uh, 30 uh, virtual lectures. I don't have to travel so much and I'm not in, in hotel rooms. But uh, one of the things uh, is that we were reticent to initiate the treatment. Emergency mm -hmm. physicians uh, weren't comfortable. One of my messages was we learned to take care of uh, respiratory distress. Uh, we became experts in intubation. Uh, nobody takes care of the heart initially better than we do. Uh, we learned how to treat sepsis, and we can learn how to treat mental health issues. And we, can, uh, uh, we just need to be comfortable with a few categories of drugs, know the side effects, uh, and initiate treatment and stabilize uh, the patients. There's a, an early uh, resistance to change, which is uh, natural human behavior, uh, but we found that uh, most of the hospital chains 
are coming to us or have initiated protocols, basically a lot of them uh, have taken some of ours, mod modified them, have dropped the drug or added a drug. Uh, and we're finding that early treatment uh, is beginning uh, in all of the hospitals. And I've got a pretty good relationship with most of the uh, emergency departments and emergency physicians. Uh, and I repeat the message. I kind of treat it like a, uh, a bridge that you're painting. You paint it and you get to the end and then turn around and paint it going back. So we, we hit the, uh, the protocols. These protocols are now two and a half, three years old. Mm -hmm. So we're going to um, reestablish the... Uh, 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 pharmacy committee on this, and that there was uh, two. There were two emergency physicians, uh, two practicing psychiatrists, and members from the, uh, the crisis uh, team on this. So we're going to update uh, the drugs, whatever new drugs are out. But we're finding uh, that boarding times have gone down about four to five hours. The other thing that I'm a big proponent of, we don't offer it uh, through the Department of Mental Health is uh, telepsychiatry. Mm -hmm. So if you need guidance, um, you can use your telepsychiatry. And the other thing is that uh, uh, when the commissioner uh, appointed me to the, this role in the state, uh, she said, just let everybody know that you're available 24-7 for consultation on the medication. So I get phone calls all the time, but it's, uh, uh, it shows that it, um, it's an exciting thing in the state uh, because people are now realizing that if 20 to percent of the patients in your emergency department have a behavioral health issue mm -hmm. that we as emergency physicians have to take this seriously. One of the last thing that's available, attachment E of the 2019 update, uh, is the rationale for non-admission. And that's one of the keys is, you know, is not, is not only knowing what to do, but also when we can uh, not admit somebody, uh, not get somebody into, uh, you know, an inpatient therapy of whatever it may be. So kind of give us a breakdown of the rationales in that, in that list for the non-admission of, of the patients in the emergency department. Well, that's, that's actually an interesting topic, and it varies from uh, state to state. Uh, in my travels from the various emergency departments, uh, the directors and emergency physicians said, all right, we go through this, the patient's evaluated, why aren't they accepted? Uh, and the criteria across the country are pretty much the same for involuntary mm -hmm. admission into a mental health uh, institute. Uh, number one would be uh, threat of suicide or harm to self. Number two would be uh, threat or actual harm to others. Number four might be destruction of property uh, and inability, uh, three and four, inability to... Uh, to function in an outpatient mm -hmm. setting without uh, care. So the, uh, the department said, we send in the paperwork, but we don't know why the patient isn't accepted for transfer. So we do have a uh, legal form that uh, delineates what the intake physician's uh, opinion or criteria was, why the, why the patient isn't accepted. Very often, if you've started the treatment, patient will stabilize and they're not suicidal anymore. And we have to remember that admission, involuntary admission into a mental health institute is legal documentation, mm -hmm. not so much uh, medical documentation. So in order to get in involuntarily to state institutions across the country, you have to meet one of those four criteria. And they're the same for pediatrics as well. 
This is interesting because so often, you know, we wonder and we go back and forth with the mental health facility on admission, non-admission, acceptance, non-acceptance. Um, and, you know, this, this, as you mentioned, the attachment gives, gives you feedback as to why the person did not meet the criteria for that uh, particular facility. Any closing remarks or, or uh, well, closing remarks and how can folks get in touch with you if they have any uh, questions or further information? Uh, anybody can contact me uh, via email. And my email is uh, sandy, S-A-N-D-Y dot Herman, H-E-R-M-A-N at tn.gov. That's Sandy Herman, sandy.herman at tn.gov. And uh, I'll answer any emails and I'll talk to anybody uh, across the country. And the more that we see the core content uh, in our residency programs and the willingness of emergency physicians and their comfort level to initiate these early treatments, the better off we'll be. And if you get a chance, uh, Google and find the t.aws uh, update. Uh, it's off tha.com is where the the, uh, the page is that I've got the PDF downloaded. And uh, you can run through that 36 pages that summarize uh, every, the things that we have talked about here as well as a lot more information. As you mentioned, the 2017 with a 2019 update. And then now in the next iteration to uh, come with regard to updates, and uh, as for me, you can contact me at rstantonatasep.org, rstantonatasep.org, or at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. Mm-hmm.